Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is The Most Important Medicine. If you don't know me, I'm a licensed psychologist, trainer, and consultant, and on this podcast, we're here to discuss how talking about trauma and providing a space for physicians to share their experiences is how we transform medicine. I work with physicians and healthcare organizations on the daily, and every time we begin these conversations, and I even hint at a discussion about trauma, I'm met with one of two things, either intense, compassionate curiosity or a whole lot of skepticism. And that's what we're here for, to make understanding and discussing trauma accessible, and even more important, how to respond to trauma so that you feel competent as a provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools so that you can use these with patients today. All right. So today I have a special guest and friend, Dr. Jean Nicholson. Uh, Jean has a primary care clinic with Kaiser Permanente, a diabetes clinic for kids with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and has been working in a multidisciplinary chronic pain clinic since February of 2022. He also works on the wards at Dornbecker Children's Hospital in Portland, Oregon, and volunteers for Gales Creek Camp, where he serves as a camp doctor for kids with diabetes. He most recently was given a Distinguished Physician Award by his colleagues at Kaiser Permanente. Once you hear Jean, you will not be surprised by this, as I am not surprised by that. So welcome, Jean. I'm so glad you're here. So good to be here. Super excited. Yeah, I'm going to just remind myself really quick. So people that are um, watching, I was going to spotlight, but I think we can see both of us now. All right. So I'm so glad you're here. That was my formal introduction of you. Um, Why don't you tell people just a little bit more about you? Sure. Well, thank you so much. My resume sounds so good (laughs) to hear it from somebody else. Um, Yeah, I would add in there that I'm I'm a dad and and a husband. I have three kids. Um, Soccer coach is one of my favorite things uh, that I do. Um, but you know, there's always, there's always more than one resume. I think, um, you know, my other, the other things that don't typically make it on a resume is, um, I grew up, uh, with a fairly challenging childhood, um, many, many divorces, a lot of, uh, uh, a a lot of stress. I had an eating disorder, uh, when I was a kid, different times I've struggled with depression and anxiety, um, and probably a lot of, you know, the other uh, struggles that many other doctors uh, have been through as well. Um, so I think it's, it's really important to, to kind of round out, <laughs> you know, um, the person that I sound like on paper and then the, you know, the person that's living day-to-day life as well. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things my hopes um, on this podcast are, is that people can be their whole selves um, recognize that, you know, healthcare providers are human beings, um, that are amazing and professional and incredibly knowledgeable and human, right. Who have their own struggles and have their own backgrounds. So, um, well, I'm a big Gene Nicholson fan for those of you that are watching on YouTube and, and maybe not hearing us on the podcast, I'm sporting the Gales Creek camp shirt today, which, um, I'll give Gene a chance to talk about here in a little bit, but you know, Gene, your passion and your wit and your intellect blend incredibly well to physician moments. And I think folks are naturally drawn to you. Um, I want to ask, I want to kind of back up and ask you a broad question um, about healthcare and trauma. How would you define trauma? That's a really good question. I would start by defining trauma with how I define coping. Mm. So the way I explain coping to the kids that I work with, um, I, I first really start with what feelings are. And we have a whole array of feelings, good feelings and bad feelings. Um, and I, I name a lot of those. And then I just find coping as what we do to feel better when we have a difficult feeling, whatever we do to feel better. And coping can be, we, we have positive coping mechanisms and we have negative coping mechanisms. And I have them help me kind of define some of those. And I, I look at that as, you know, negative coping uh, is are things that basically makes make our situations more difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, positive coping is something that allows us to grow, Mm -hmm. uh, through, through a situation. So trauma to me is any time that 
something happens to you that overwhelms your coping, your positive coping ability. So it's something that you're just not able to get through uh, and, and grow from. Um, and um, you may not be able to cope at all, or you may uh, engage in unhealthy coping mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you're differentiating for listeners, um, kind of positive or less healthy coping mechanisms, but I want people to know all coping mechanisms are simply a way we've learned to alleviate stress. Right. And if we don't have role models who are teaching us those healthy, positive coping tools, then we're left to maybe um, things that we've witnessed from family members that may not have been healthy or from peers or things like that. So when just out of curiosity, when you're talking to kids about healthy and non-healthy coping mechanisms, um, how do you start that conversation with them just to help other people who might be wanting to have that kind of conversation? Absolutely. Well, I, I integrated into my well checks, basically. So when I, t- when, when I introduce what we're doing when I'm doing a well child check, I just I I tell them that what I think about for well checks is the big picture. And it's always surprising to me how many kids actually don't know what I mean by the big picture. So I say mm-hmm. that and I say, you know, the big picture for me is that you have the healthiest body you can have, you have the healthiest mind you can have, and that you have a happy heart. And that's what I'm always thinking about every time I that I see a patient. And and I go on to, you know, I, I explain that there are a lot of things that go into trying to achieve that. And, but for me, there, there are five things that I focus on. I'll just tell you um, that uh, emotional well-being is, is one of those. And so, and then I ask them, what, what do I mean by, you know, your, your emotional health or your mental health? And um, if they're not really sure, I go in to describe what feelings are. And then I go through the whole dialogue that I just um, kind of described, you know, that we all have feelings. It's normal that we all feel sad, happy anxious, curious, frustrated, um, we run the gambit. Yeah. Uh, but then when we have those difficult emotions, you know, th- so that's, that's kind of how I, I start the conversation um, is just kind of describing. And, and I, I think one of the powers, one of the things that I find the most powerful is that when I describe emotions, I'm using the word we. So I'm not saying you feel like this and this and this. I'm saying we, we all do. Um, and then I all, I'm also, you know, changing my voice and acting like I'm, you know, sad or happy or mad just as I do it. So they're just mm-hmm. seeing that, oh yeah, this is a normal thing. Even my doctor knows yeah. what it's like to have these various feelings. Yeah. Um, so I, I really just try to normalize things, um, and, and put everyone sort of at ease. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's my, oftentimes it's a, an adolescent or pre-adolescent and their, and their parents in the room mm-hmm. as we kind of move into these discussions. So healthy body, healthy mind, happy heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's like kind of that. the big picture. Yeah. 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 Um, so on this podcast, we talk about how trauma can often present in the field of medicine and you have some subspecialties in diabetes and it sounds like m- most recently doing some um, work in pain clinics. Um, so trauma can show up overtly. Um, and sometimes really subtly, can you speak to what it looks like in your area of specialty? Like, so that if another person that's listening wonders, like, how does trauma show up in families of kids with diabetes or in kids with diabetes or in pain? Like, what would I be looking for? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it can show up in so many different ways, as you know, in in my primary care clinic, I see uh, one of the one of the, I'll tell you one of the ways I see it the most is friction between kids and their parents. Yes. When they come in and I see, and I just see body language uh, or overt verbal um, friction, I, I, I know that there's, there's trauma. Mm-hmm. I know that if that spills out into the exam room where I am there, I, this is just, I'm just seeing the tip of the iceberg and there must be a lot of that going on at home. Uh, so to me, those are always big cues. Of course, there are kids who are just dealing with mood disorders, there's anxiety, depression, um, kids who are doing poorly in school, who aren't sleeping well. Um, I, and I, you know, generally, I can just get a sense of how, even if a kid isn't great at expressing what their mood is, I can get a sense of how they're doing by just watching them interact with me. 
Do you think that that the very diagnosis of diabetes is traumatic for families? Perhaps 100%. 100%. And there's a spectrum just like everything else. So I, I work with some families who have multiple kids with, di- with diabetes. By the mm-hmm. time they get to their third kid, it's not as big of a trauma. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, the first time, uh, you know, and for most families if who are dealing with type 1 diabetes, there's just one, one kid who has diabetes. Yeah, it's extremely traumatic. This is a scenario that oftentimes starts out in the ICU. If you can imagine mm-hmm. that. When I when I when I try to explain what it feels like to families, I I have pro- providers close their eyes and just imagine that they're hearing the sound of you know beeping in the ICU and of all those various alarms and and um and then you know imagine them seeing their kid lying in the bed, maybe awake, maybe not, with lots of IVs going on. Um, and just to imagine what that feels like, um, especially if you have no idea what it all means and, and where and is it going? You otherwise thought had a healthy, healthy trajectory, right? Yeah. And then, I mean, cause it's not like, I mean, the, the diagnosis of diabetes usually comes very suddenly. There's an incident that occurs, right. And the, and the child ends up in the ICU. Yes. Yes. It is a fairly explosive disease. You, you're going to, you know, generally over the course of a several days to a week or so, there are changes that, you know, families are noticing that ultimately put them in front of a doctor. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then pretty quickly they get the the diagnosis oftentimes. Yeah. So, so the initial, the initial diagnosis is definitely traumatic for the, for the family, for the kid. And then you'll notice it sounds like smaller ways that that trauma presents friction between the parents and the kids, moodiness. Um, what about just, uh, I'm going to call it difficult to manage patients. Um, is that a way that trauma shows up? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of times I think trauma just manifests as anyone who's struggling. Yeah. I, I mean, cause trauma can be so many things. I mean, I see kids who, whose parents are deported, right. Parents mm-hmm. who, you know, kids whose parents, um, are living on the street or the kids living on the street or all sorts of different things. But I see other kids who come from fairly affluent backgrounds who are really, really suffering too. Um, so, I mean, trauma, um, it, it can man- it can come from so many different places and it can look, but it all, it all looks like struggling. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, if there's a kid who's, who's struggling uh, to manage their diabetes, it tells me a couple of things. One, the, the kid's having a tough time, but also that the parent is having a tough time supporting the kid. Mm. And I, I think that is where I, I say this with a lot of sensitivity towards what parents are going through, but I think a lot of that is where the trauma for the kid happens. Yeah. So here I'll walk you through a scenario that kind of starts with what we talked about in the ICU. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine that you're that parent and you're next to the, all the beeping sounds and your, your kid is hooked up to all these IVs. And you're hearing from doctors that your kid now has a lifelong condition, that they almost died. This is a very common thing that parents will, will hear and it will always stick with them. <laughs> and not only that, but that they could die later if their blood sugars aren't, you know, really kept in, you know, this kind of tight range. Right. Um, so suddenly you, 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 you come from a place where you're a parent of a kid who can eat whatever they want, run around with their friends do whatever. And they're, they're going to be okay. They're just living a a childhood to a kid who, um, you feel like could just die at any moment. Yeah. And And what I just just heard with my mom brain gene was monitor the crap out of that because you need to keep this kid alive. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now, uh, you know, what happens in a parent's mind is the, I'll tell you the first thing that happens is they say, what did I do wrong? Every single parent wants to know why their kid got diabetes and they're pretty sure that they did it. Mm. They're pretty sure that they did it. Did they breastfeed long enough? Was it the Cheetos that they put in the lunch? Mm. You know, was it the vaccine that they didn't did or didn't get? Mm-hmm. They parents will fish for any kind of explanation um, that 
you know, that oftentimes comes back to them about why their kid is suffering. And um, that's not something that they typically verbalize. Um, but I, I almost 100% of parents uh, feel like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that happens. Then they're going to ask themselves, can I do this? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the parents are, you know, they're already overwhelmed in a lot of cases, just being a parent, mm -hmm. you know, which I get 100%. And now to add on this layer of responsibility is just absolutely overwhelming. Uh, and then they want to know if their kid's going to be okay. Sure. Um, interestingly enough, and I can tell you just from my own journey, because I've done a lot of things wrong over the years and, and I've, I've learned and hopefully I'm doing them better now. I still have a lot to learn, but I can tell you that those, com those three questions usually are not addressed. Mm. People don't usually say, unless a parent asks, they don't usually come out and say, listen, did you know this has nothing to do with anything that you did right or wrong? Yeah. And so parents don't get that. They, they carry that through them. And they, we also don't say, do you know that you can do this? We don't okay. say that. We, what we say is, you better be able to do this. Yeah. Right. And we don't mean to. We're not. It's, there's nothing malicious about this. We want to support families. We just don't always really fully understand what they're going through. So we don't we don't say that. And we so also I feel like, I, I'm yeah. sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I, I feel like if if people are listening and there's one thing they could change right now, whether it's a diagnosis of diabetes or any diagnoses, right, that we're that we're giving to a kid, to a family, it's the first time they've heard this, right, is that it's not your fault right? You didn't make this happen and you can do this. We, like you said before, the partnership, we, we can do this together. Yes. Oh, hundred okay. percent. And your kid's going to be okay. Mm. It's okay to say that it's mm -hmm. okay to say anything that you can do to empower the parent, to build them up, to reduce some of their anxiety is just mm -hmm. going, is going to feed forward. So what I see in this scenario that started in the ICU starts with what we don't communicate with the family about. And unfortunately, it also starts with kind of the things that we inevitably, the feelings that we inevitably stoke, even if we don't mean to, which is a lot of anxiety, oftentimes a lot of guilt, a lot of these negative emotions or you know, difficult emotions we were talking about. What happens is a parent goes home and they have this kid who, it, my best way to explain this, you know, with diabetes, but to be honest, you could apply this same thing to really any chronic illness yeah, Sure, is that they're like, um, like a, uh, like an hourglass with sand, right? And if that sand has to stay at a certain level, if it drops too low, then their kid could die. If it's too high, their kid could die, Ugh. right? This is how they feel. This, I'm yeah. not saying this is how it is, but this is how they feel. And you have to keep turning that hourglass up and over and over, right? And unfortunately, that hourglass is inside of a box. Mm. It's inside of a box of your kid. Your kid is running around and you don't know where the sand is, right? Um, so you have a parent who feels like this. They're immensely anxious and feeling guilt and all of these other things. And there, it is impossible as a parent to hide those kinds of emotions uh, from your kid. They, they come out, and I'm not saying that they need, they need to be concealed from uh, any child, but the way that they typically manifest is you know, fussing, yelling, constantly monitoring. Sure. And guess what? The kids don't end up loving that, right? They don't like being told constantly that they're doing something wrong, um, that they're messing up. Uh, that gosh, it, I, I'm just a blood sugar. You know, that's what they feel like. You know, to their, to their parents, yeah. uh, everything their parents are doing is coming from a deep place of love, but the I kids mean, don't feel I, it like that. I have to say, like I, I've seen you and heard you do the box analogy before, right? And for those of you that can't see it, like Gene holds up this this box and like the hourglass is in the box, and I, as he describes it as a mom, I feel anxious right? Like you're telling me that I'm responsible for something inside the box that I can't see that could mean life or death for my kid. And that's terribly anxiety provoking. And so I, I just love and appreciate that. So often you're messaging to the parent, you can do this and your kid's going to be okay. I mean, 
I don't even know. I, I don't have a child with, with diabetes. And yet I don't know the last time I heard that as a mom, your kid's going to be okay. And you can do this. hundred I mean, percent. It, it's a message all parents need to hear so frequently. Yes. Every parent, every parent, every parent in my clinic, in my continuity clinic, you know, with or without a chronic illness, they all get that from me. Yeah. Every yeah. single parent, even the parent who is, wow, just from the outside, <laughs> looks like they are a total mess. I find something that I see uh, that I can reflect back to them that's that's positive. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. nothing, there's, I think I, I used back in the day, I, to me, that was not that that was something that would be irresponsible because I would in some way be communicating to the family that I condone like all the things that they're not doing well. Mm. You know, in, in some ways, I think that we all carry around this shame lever that we want to pull, pull and we don't call it that we don't know what it is, but we feel mm. like that is one of our most powerful tools. And Oh my God, study after study show that shame leads to, you know, worse behaviors in terms of um, healthy lifestyles, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. eating worse, sleeping less, more risky behaviors, all of that gets worse with, with shame. So I think the antidote to that is just like really finding what you can that, uh, is amazing. And to be honest, a lot of the families that I've seen that are really struggling, they have been through a lot of crap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love this yeah. concept, Gene, of a shame lever, right? Like, I, I think that people often use fear or shame as a way to guide patient behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Especially think about like you were mentioning that you often work with like preteens and teenagers. So we're talking about kids who are thinking about sex, thinking about drugs, thinking about alcohol, peer pressure, school, future. And I think naturally, people want to kind of scare them, shame them, right? Into like making better choices. How do you shift that conversation? Maybe you have like a a really tough parent in your office and they want you to just like be the hammer, like partner with them to be the hammer. I know I've been in those situations with their kid and kind of set them on the straight path. Like how do you deal with those tough families? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, it, calls to mind a story that that um, was really transformative for me. Every, every provider out there knows the experience of a parent walking in the room and asking them to be uh, the disciplinarian. They, they, they want, they're leaning on you to shape their kid into, you know, a certain kind of behavior, like, mm-hmm. a, you know, a better behavior because they feel like, uh, there's some validity that comes from, from you that they're not going to get. Yeah, you know, as you a parent. have the authority. Sure. <laughs> right? sure. Yeah, I get that. So, uh, gosh, and if I could do that with, with my own kids, I would, <laughs> I would want that too. I get it a hundred percent. Oh my gosh. It is such a struggle being a parent and wanting different behaviors. So, mm-hmm. um, we do whatever we can, right? Mm-hmm. I had a scenario where, um, uh, there's a, a, a 10 year old girl um, who comes into me and her mom walks in. The first thing she says is nothing works. Nothing works. She, this, this is a girl with type one diabetes. You know, I've, I have talked to her endlessly uh, about the dangers of diabetes. I've taken her to dialysis clinics so she could see what, you know, what it's like. I've shown her videos of amputations because I want her to know um, how serious this is. Right. And I need you to explain to her just how bad it is that she sneaks food or, you know, doesn't want to take her insulin and all of those things. Now, my first reaction when I hear that is that's absolutely horrible (laughs) that you are abusing this child. Yeah. But I mean, if I step back, I can also really empathize with that mom. If I if I walk through that story that started in the ICU and what she's heard from doctors along the way, I'm looking at a mom who's absolutely terrified and she's reaching for every single lever that she can get guilt, shame, educating, you know, whatever, whatever it is that can keep her, her kid healthy. She's trying to do it. And if I look at it in that way, instead of what a terrible mom, that's when I can connect with this mom. So the first thing I say is, 
oh my God, you are terrified. So that's the first thing I do. I really try to validate what the parent's going through. Mm -hmm. You are so scared that Mm -hmm. she's going to die. You are so scared that she's going to be that kid, you know, losing her kidneys or her legs or whatever. And you want to do whatever you can to keep her safe. Yes. Yes. You know, you get it. Oh my gosh. I, I get it. I get it where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I asked for permission. Would it be okay if we talked about a different, a different way that you, that you could get there? Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I can't ever open up a conversation with, with teaching. Mm-hmm. It's always got to start with validation. If, if, if any parent thinks that I don't get where they're coming from, nothing I say is really, it's all going to be hollow. They're, they're not going to hear a word that I say. And, and I get that because I feel like that too. If someone doesn't know where I'm, where I'm, what I'm feeling, I don't, why would I trust their advice? Maybe this right. is a good, a good catalyst um, to talk about the acronym that you use with when you're coaching parents, it's VB coach, right? Yeah. So um, I just use this as sort of um, when I give presentations about these kind of topics. Uh, this is just one small acronym that that I use, and it's volleyball coach for what it's worth. And uh, V stands for validate, B stands for build up or bolster, and C sounds stands for coach. Um, so we all kind—I of, mean, this is loosely based on on motivational interviewing, but I, I think it's a little bit different. And in fact, I, I'm not sure if I really even strongly believe in the idea of motivating people. I, I really um, and motivated motiv- someone who's very into motivational interviewing will say, well, you know, what, the whole strategy is to let them motivate themselves. But even then, I really don't, I really not sure if I connect a lot with the idea of motivation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do really, really believe in, in the power of just listening, mm-hmm. uh, of just letting someone heal really difficult emotions is what allows them to move forward. I agree. And you know, the idea of motivation is, I don't know, it's really tough for me. It's like, it, it calls to mind sort of an idea of like, you know, a, a, a drill sergeant or, you know, so, somebody that's, um, it, it, it speaks too much of like character. And I, I, this, is, this is nothing to do with character, right? In fact, I really try to remove any, any sort of, any kind of notion that has any judgment to it at all. Everybody's doing the best they can, right? So anyways, so I think the most important part, if I were to say this volleyball coach thing, uh, is is validate and build up, and then may, maybe coach, mm-hmm. but but you so so validate, um, which we already kind of touched on, is just is just really, um, first of all, getting them to express what's really going on. Mm-hmm. You can't really validate until you kind of know what they're feeling, right? My strategy to get one of my strategies to getting there um, is really asking about how things are going right now. I think too often when we start a conversation, how are how are things? How you doing? You know, and this is it's kind of a very very vague thing. If you start off with, "How's your morning going?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people will get closer to how they're really feeling because they also want to know they they also feel that you kind of see them. Oh, like you you really want to know about me, right? Like you're seeing me yes. right here. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how often I hear like, oh, we, we barely made it here. Or oh, to be honest, oh, today's been a rough one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an opening. That's you, right. have your, you have your hands full. Oh my gosh, you're doing so much. You're exhausted. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. What's on your plate? Mm-hmm. Now I have something that I can work with and I can validate. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, you know, even, and even if it's not explicit, a lot of times I might say, how's your morning? I, uh, oh, it's okay. If I say, oh my gosh, I heard a lot of exhaustion and how you, the way you said that. Perfect. Now, now there's a connection. They know that I see them. Mm-hmm. They know it's okay to talk about mm-hmm. the way that they're really feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, um, validating is, is a really powerful once, once you kind of like really see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I always, you know, saying what you see, 
to me is is just one of the most powerful ways to get there. And then I think just as powerful as that next is that not just validating, but also just building up. Like, wow, man, you have your plate full. Yeah. And you made it here. I don't know how you do it. Exactly. (laughs) I love that you find a way with every family to say to them, here's something you're doing well or right. Every family is doing, even if, even if, like you said, you're like, whoa, I don't know what else is going on here. There's a lot, there's complexity, but there's one thing I'm going to find that's going well for this family today and that they're doing right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not, once you practice it, it's not hard. You can always, I mean, literally just showing up is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But also I can find little moments, uh, you know, in the visit. Oh my gosh, you know, little Johnny is totally losing it over there. How do you stay so calm? I'm so impressed. I love that. (laughs) Just finding the smallest things. Yeah. And sort of like, you know, generally showing them like, oh my gosh, like I, you know, even I would struggle with that. You know, it's, it's, it's super powerful. Um, so yeah, building up is super, super important. And I think, you know, the coaching piece too, I think that too many times we feel like we need to be really explicit with our coaching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I used to do that a lot more and now I'll say things like, um, you know, tell me about, tell me about your parents when you were kids. Mm-hmm. So often I'll get like, Ooh, well, you know, my mom was a drug addict and, you know, I was raised by my grandparents and they were really, they were really strict, but I'm trying really hard to be, you know, different than they were. Oh, really? Yeah. Tell me about that. And now they're talking about the parent that they want to be. I didn't, I didn't say anything. I love this. You're, I mean, like when, I think when people hear the, the, the term coaching, right? So first you're validating, just helping them feel seen. Then you're building them up. Anything you can find that they're doing well, they're doing right. And then coaching, you're not like, this is what you should do. Like coaching someone you're saying, I want to learn more about you. I want to chat with you. I want to, like, I think about the term coach you up right? It, that's what it reminded me of when you said, now they're talking to me about the parent they want to be. Yes. I mean, yeah. and it's, it's, it's so powerful. I had a, a, a mom the other day who was really struggling with parenting their, um, their elementary school kid who was having a lot of behavioral issues. And I, and I asked her, and, and she had been raised by a bunch of different people, didn't have like a central parental figure. And I said, well, who is somebody in your life that really was a positive influence in your kid. And she said, without a, missing a beat, she's like my fourth grade teacher. Aww. And I was like, oh, really? Why? It's like, I don't know. He was just so positive. He, we just wanted to do whatever he said. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, interesting. Was he like, did he have like a lot of strict rules? Did people, did he like, did people get in trouble? No, there was just some way he made you feel special. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, I mean, that's that, like- that, that, that is everything that I want to tell you about how to deal with behavioral yes. stress. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I hope everybody listening, like that's so stealth by the way, Gene, <laughs> like, oh really? What did he do? Tell me about that. Was he strict and punitive? And did he yell? Oh no, he was positive. He was great. He was kind. Okay. Right. Again. And did he have rules? Yes. He had rules. Yeah. Right. Like it's okay to have boundaries. Like she was saying all of it. It's okay to have boundaries, but you also are like really positive. You make every kid feel special. Yeah. And so really what you're doing when you're coaching is you're really just helping them realize their own true potential, which is incredible. Yeah. Which is interesting because if you, if you ask a lot of, you know, a lot of parents, you know, will tell you about this sort of their, their model of being a good parent. And it may be, it may be very sort of unhealthy. They may mm-hmm. tell you, well, you know, I need to, I need to be strict. I need to right. like, you know, right. I need, I need to be the, the leader and they need to yeah. listen to what I'm saying. Yeah. Disciplinarian. But that same person, that same parent, if you ask them who had a positive influence on them, will tell you a very different thing. Oh, so yes. you, that's, that, that is um, where you want to get them to. You want to get them to that that sort of conflict between kind of what they think they should do and what they feel like they know helped them when they were, when they were kids. I love that. I love that. Um, 
So obviously you have your natural teacher. Um, you, however, have really complex patients and families that you work with. Um, when you're not doctoring, how are you taking care of yourself? Oh, well, um, I love to play. I mean, I really am a kid at heart, to be honest. If I mean, I just, I, I really am a 12 year old. <laughs> I, I love going mountain biking with my buddies. Um, I usually, I try to do that. It doesn't always happen, but I try to do that once a week. I coach soccer. Um, I've been coaching soccer for years and I coach at the younger ages and it really is like playing. <laughs> um, I mean, there's just, just the energy out there is amazing and it's very refreshing to me. I had, you know, my three kids, um, I just, I love connecting with them. Um, I, you know, I know I watch some Netflix <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, my wife and I have, have been through several series together watching Netflix or, um, and we also have a dog. Um, we take our dog out. I meet people in the park. Um, yeah, I just, um, uh, but you know what it, I hear you saying, Gene? Yeah. I hear you saying, I coach, I spend time with friends, I watch Netflix, I hang with my wife, I love spending time with my kids, I play. To me, that is balance. Right? When you know your your daytime hours are spent as a physician who's clearly compassionate and incredible as a teacher. And um, as a colleague, and there's this whole other part of you that's trying to remain balanced when possible. Yeah, there is. And I'll, I'll tell you something else that I do, I, I think is really key for me at least. And that is I finish my work before I go home every day. I always finish my work. I might get home late, but when I do get home, I'm home. You're home. I'm hundred percent home. Yeah. You know, um, there are, I do have some families who have my cell phone number and they, they use that sometimes. And I'm always happy to do that. Um, but, and those are sort of exceptional circumstances, but for the most part, when I'm home, I'm not really thinking about work. Mm, I, so oh, it feels so good. It feels, I just, I, to me, if I'm in more than one place at, at once, I just, it's, it's painful. To be honest, I don't, even if I'm doing something that I enjoy, I really don't get much out of it. If I'm in more than one place, I just need to be where I am. Because uh, your, so, your brain is somewhere else. Yeah. 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 I, I know we're getting ready to wrap up, but I can't not ask you this because you just mentioned being off work when you're really off work. How do you get out of there. I mean, with all the stressors of electronic health record, returning calls, like, do you set a limit for yourself? Do you set a time frame? Are you working differently during the day so that you can do that? Like, is there any little golden nugget there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'll tell you, I'll just take a minute to explain this. A, a while back, I had a very, very transformative experience with a sleep therapist. Hmm. Okay. I was having a lot of insomnia. Okay. And something that this guy uh, really focused on was this, uh, what he called like a sleep object. So when there is something, that, when you're a baby, this is just you're like your mom, you know, rocking you. And then later it's like maybe a stuffed animal. And then eventually when you're an adult, it's your bed and your pillow. That should be where like your brain says, it's time to relax and go to sleep. Yeah. You're not saying that your brain is just knows that. And the big part of that is like not, not carrying your phone into your bed and doing other things and not getting into bed until you're actually sleepy, not just tired. Right. Mm -hmm. The reason I say that is it's a great, I think it's a great, it's very instructional for a lot of different things that we do. And for me, one of those things is work. So when I, when I log out of our electronic health record system, mm -hmm. that's my brain saying now I'm, now I'm done. I, you know, I've just trained myself to do that. And, um, I, I, consider finishing my work as, as a non-negotiable. Yeah. Got it. I mean, there, I mean, I'm a person too. like, if I need to make my kids 
game or what you know there are times you know but for the that i have to leave some stuff maybe undone but the vast majority of the time i finish my work um so it's a non-negotiable and i i really try to have this moment when i log out at the end of the day where my brain just says now now i'm going home yeah i just see home I love it. As, as therapists, we, we, we call those like transition objects, right. Or like, you know, you were talking about like with sleep, right. It's this object that you associate with sleep and like logging out is literally logging out of work for the day. Yeah. I think that's so important. Um, uh, briefly for people that might be interested in Gales Creek camp, can you just talk about Gales Creek, Creek camp briefly? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. First of all, every single kid who has type 1 diabetes in our general area, which is basically the Northwest, should go to a diabetes camp. We, we are one of the, the few in the greater Northwest. Yeah, I really consider it to be a fundamental part of your therapy uh, for, for having type 1. Camp is amazing. I could talk all day about uh, how fun camp is. It's a big campus. Uh, there's you know, an enormous field. There's hiking, there's basketball court, there is a pool, uh, uh, there's a cafeteria, there's cabins, we play capture the flag, and there are games and art and all things all day long. It's incredible. There are a lot of camps that are amazing. This one also features, you know, 59 other kids who are taking insulin yeah. all day long, right? Yeah. And you're, you're used to being with 100 kids who have no idea what it is. Mm-hmm. right? And adults who misunderstand it. Yeah. All of a sudden, these kids get to feel normal. Yes. They get to have fun. And their parents, a lot of the parents uh, get to meet each other um, and say, oh my God, you get it. <laughs> right? So um, so that parent who's been through the ICU experience and all of those stuff and all of those things um, suddenly has just a little bit of healing because they know that somebody else has been through it too. Mm-hmm. And um, not only that, when they drop their kids off, I know a lot of families who go on vacation, right? They get to just relax and not, not um, worry about blood sugars uh, for a full week. It's incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've been going there um, for, for so many years and losing count. And I just got to say, there are just these positive, positive vibes there that are like, unlike anywhere else I've ever been. It's just this collective positive experience um, that, uh, that is just built around, you know, this understanding that having diabetes is difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you don't have to tell us if it's against camp code, but do you have a camp name, Gene? Oh yeah. Dr. Mustache. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can see me, you can see, I do not have a mustache, but oftentimes I'll try to grow one just for camp. Oh, that's um, awesome. That's awesome. And, and you mentioned Gales Creek is a camp in the Northwest. Um, are there, is there an international way or a national way if other families are interested, but they might, might not be in this area to learn about camps for kids with diabetes? Absolutely. Well, I mean, the first thing they should do is just talk to their doctor. Their, their doctor will probably know about a local camp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if not Google, yep. you know, I don't know all of them, but I, you know, I, I have been to like sort of like the, the national, um, association for diabetes camps. I can tell you they're all over the place. And, awesome. you know, so okay. most kids should have access to, to a camp, even if it's a little bit of a drive. We'll link up to Gales Creek camp in the show notes um, so that people can learn about it because it is incredible. I had the opportunity to talk with all of you and Rob Daly, your executive director and a group of parents. You have an incredible parent support group um, available as well. Yeah. So even outside of the summertime, we're doing monthly parent support groups. I love that. I'm pretty much always there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I love those. Okay. Just a couple of wrap up what I call rapid fire questions before we're, we're done for today. Are you ready? Let's do it. (laughs) Um, What's one thing that people get wrong about physicians? Uh, I think that I would say that maybe a lot of people don't realize that physicians are scared. Mm. I think, you know, physicians are scared of not knowing what they need to know. Mm. They're afraid that, that they're not the expert that they should be. Uh, they're afraid of making mistakes. They're afraid of getting sued. They're afraid of 
losing the confidence of the people they're taking care of. Uh, I think they're afraid of not being able to meet the needs of their patients. Sometimes they're afraid of like patients getting too close to them, you Mm -hmm. know, or wanting too much from them. I just think there's all these fears that, that pretty much almost every doctor I know carries around. That's a heavy, heavy carry. Um, how long have you been practicing medicine? Uh, I started my residency in 2005. So whatever that math turns out to be (laughs) 17 plus years. So if you could go back to young Dr. Nicholson, what would you tell him? Uh, I would say, um, first of all, I would say, get over yourself. (laughs) You're the, you know, you don't have to be an amazing, an amazing doctor. You just have to be a human. Mm -hmm. And that is where you build the best connections with, uh, the, the patients you work with. Patients see right through it when you try to be a know-it-all. Oh my God. It's like, it's the most obvious thing in the world. And, and I, and patients don't love it. Right. And so I, I would just say, you know, say, you don't know, uh, say you're baffled, say that's a shoulder, that that's a shoulder shrugger for me. I I don't know, but I'll, you know, I'll go and, and, and find out. Um, I think that that's really, really key. I I can tell you, um, a really poignant moment, moment for me where this, where I started to learn this lesson was, was actually during residency when I was rounding in the ICU. And I happened to be on the same rotation as my wife, who also was a resident. And I was not prepared for rounds. This rounds are where, you know, you walk around and, and the attending doctor is asking everyone to report on their patients. I just wasn't prepared. I had tried, but it was very com I had very complex patients and I was so stressed. So when it came to my time to present, I just, you know, I looked like a deer in a headlights and I was sweating, stuttering. I looked just I I looked like I was guilty of something. <laughs> And, it was, and, and, and then later we rounded on one of my wife's patients and she reported everything, including the labs. And my attending doctor said, you know what? Those are yesterday's labs. And my wife said, oh yeah, you know, sometimes I lie. And it was just like this joke and that everyone laughed on it. And I thought it was, my first reaction was that's so unfair. <laughs> I worked so hard to try to get the right information and I didn't get it on time. And, and she just sort of passed this off as like a very human moment. But I, I also, I, instead of just being resentful of that moment, I really thought about like, okay, like, what am I getting wrong here? Mm-hmm. I'm just a person. And, and it, my attending would respond so much more to me just being a person yes. than to me being so insecure about what I just did wrong mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about how, you know, so anyways, I think just getting over yourself, just being a person is golden. So that's perfect because my next question is, I think in healthcare, often parents and patients are intimidated, right? By professionals. Um, What's one thing that makes you a messy human? What's one thing that makes you perfectly imperfect? Oh, well, I mean, how long do you have? (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you one thing that I, um, that I really struggle with and, and I, and I, I definitely feel like I wear a responsibility for this, but it, it's also just a reflection on just modern times maybe, but I am always trying to build community. Mm. I, I am very close to a lot of people in a lot of different places, but I don't feel like they, they all know each other. I don't always, you know, um, You're a I will, I, yeah, which is great, but it, sometimes it feels lonely. You know, mm-hmm. I really want that sense of warmth where like everybody's sort of this more integrated community mm-hmm. feeling. And it's, I'll just say, I think it's really, really challenging when everyone has careers and kids and, and, and all of that. Um, it's something that's always on my mind and something I always um, want to work to do better, you know, mm-hmm. have people over more often. Um, I, to be honest, I think a big part of that's being less busy and, yeah. and, so I need to get a little over my own ambition too, to be honest. Yeah. I, I, I want I'll be careful. I don't want to make like a humble brag, right? <laughs> if it, it's, it's, but it's true. Like, I, I think that sometimes we get so wrapped up into all of our own things that we don't take the time to really. And there's tension. You know, like what you're saying is there's tension between like what we want to accomplish and what we really need, which is connection. And that means slowing down. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. really appreciate that. Okay. Last question. Super, super hard. Um, it's 11 PM 
and you have a food craving, what do you reach for? Oh, this is going to sound so lame, <laughs> but it's peanut butter and apple. Oh. I I have a thing about it. I it just Adam's peanut butter, especially yeah. crunchy. I I, butter, I don't not know butter, not the other butters. Peanut butter. I'll I'll take almond butter too. Uh, but there's something about peanut butter. Uh, crunchy. I just I don't crunchy. know. It's so satisfying to me. A good sweet apple, good sweet crunchy apple and peanut butter. Uh, I'm with you. Salty, sweet. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. Thanks for being on here. And I have to say, um, I hope people learn more about Gales Creek. I hope they listen to this podcast. They're going to get so much out of it. Um, but I, I will say too, Jean, like you are just a light in this world and what you do for your patients and how you speak about people in general, I think make us want to be better people. So thank you for sharing. Um, and that, that, that idea of like wanting closeness and community, I'm, I'm with you on that. I hope that that's, Oh, I think a lot of, I think a lot of people are, I mean, the surgeon general is like loneliness is like the, you know, number one health threat yeah. It's something that we don't talk about enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Appreciate it. This has been so fun, so fun. And oh my gosh, you're such an inspiration to me. You have influenced me enormously. Um, And you you, you still do. And I love your podcast. Uh, It's really fantastic. It's been super fun. Thanks so much. All right. Well, take care. Have a great day. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you and keep sharing your own because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.